of his disciples as little ones, those that are humble and trustful as he gave instruction to his disciples he instructed them not to offend a little one and that certainly included the disciples but also those who would come to Christ those sinners who had been lost and away from God and God in his mercy through Christ, through his disciples, the gospel was being preached and they were coming to Christ. We took some time to examine the gospel context in which Jesus says these words, and it's apparent that he's talking about sinners who would have been looked upon with contempt, those who did not fit the characteristic God-fearer or someone who is regularly in attendance at synagogue worship. These are those who Christ ate with, and he was mocked as a friend of sinners. But these are the ones that Jesus welcomed, and he called his disciple disciples to welcome them. In fact, verse 5, it says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He identifies with them. So I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a little one, but that characteristic humble trustfulness is something that should be for every Christian. As Jesus continues, he speaks of the little ones again in verse 10, but then he goes on to give a parable of sheep and a lost sheep. And as he gives the parable of the lost sheep here, and we find in other gospel accounts, Jesus teaching of himself as the good shepherd and his people as sheep. And of course, we see that in the rest of the New Testament as well, as the church is called a flock, that there's something about sheep that is consistent with what we are. And the Lord uses that term to categorize us or characterize us. The leader of God's people is a shepherd or an under-shepherd, and he's a sheep too. But Jesus uses that illustration here, and the value of one of those sheep, as he says that the one that's lost, the shepherd is going to go out and find and leave the 99, and he's going to rejoice when he finds that one and brings it again. And that's the joy of a shepherd, but it's also the joy of God over one sinner that repents, one that turns back to the Lord. There's joy when that happens. So in the context of this chapter, it is a child, a humble, trustful child that's characteristic of a believer, a sheep that may tend to wander. But notice in verse 15, Jesus continues to teach. He says, if your brother sins. Again, in verse 21, Peter asks him the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin? Now, Peter had brothers. But this one, this reference is not to a brother by blood, but a spiritual brother, a disciple, a fellow disciple. The language of the New Testament is consistent with this as we understand 
family relationships within those who follow Christ. Christ said himself, Matthew chapter 12, as his mother, his mother Mary and his brothers were outside and calling for him and he was told that they were there, and then he asked the question in the presence of his disciples. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And if someone asked that question, you would kind of wonder about their sanity if they were serious. But Jesus was using the question to drive home a point, because as he answered that question, he stretched out his hand toward his disciples, Matthew says, and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. There's a family relationship between Christ and his people. It's family. Mother, brother, sister, their relationships. Beyond what you would say are the relationships between people. Obviously, we have human families, but Jesus was not talking about physical or blood connection. He was talking about the household of faith, the family of God. And I think it is significant as Jesus gives guidance here how to care for little ones or brothers who fall into sin, that that language and that thought is a part of even the reasoning for why we would go and speak to that person. This is a brother. This is a sister. This is someone with whom I have a relationship. And in terms of the plan and salvation of God, it is an eternal relationship. This is the household of faith. Jesus gives instructions in verses 15 down through verse 20 of how to care for little ones or brothers or sheep who fall into sin. It's obviously God's concern, verses 12 through 14. That's the purpose of the parable. It's Christ's concern. But it should be the, the concern of God's people as well. Peter's going to ask some clarifying questions. Uh, a clarifying question in verse 21. But before we ever get to that point in this chapter, Jesus gives instruction in anticipation of the possibility that someone would fall into sin or perhaps sin against their brother or sister in Christ. Notice verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And this is God's word. This is Christ's own word and his teaching to his disciples as he gives what some would say is the process 
of church discipline. The process of church discipline, or in the context of this chapter, it's caring for little ones who fall into sin. And Jesus, in his instruction here, uses that terminology, brother, so as to remember the relationship that we have with that fellow believer. This is a brother. This is a sister. And it begins with an individual confrontation. That's the first step. Notice it says, if your brother sins, you might have a marginal note there. There are some manuscripts that have the words against you. So if your brother sins against you, some manuscripts have the earlier ones, don't have those words. Which is it? Well, it's obvious that Peter later says in verse 21, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So that question that Peter's asking implies that the sin that could be committed in verse 15 is a sin between a brother and a brother or a brother and a sister or a sister and a sister. By implication, I'm saying So it could be a sin that someone has committed, and it is against you directly. I think we could say as we study God's Word that it's not only those sins that should concern us when someone has fallen into sin. And the word sin here is the word that is a common word for sin, Hamartia being the noun, hamartano, it means to miss the mark or to fall short of the mark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They miss the mark of God's righteousness and God's holiness. What kind of sin would that be? Well, let me just give you a couple other cross-references. I'm not going to ask you to turn to these passages, but Galatians chapter 6 says, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. There's a different word, trespass. It's when someone steps over the line. What is the line? The line is the line that God set himself. It's God's commands. Someone say the moral law, disobedience to the moral law, a serious sin. Luke chapter 17, verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Jesus is giving the same principle there. He's just going into more detail here. As the issue, you could say, progresses with someone who does not hear you, someone who does not listen to you, someone who does not repent, what should you do? And I think this is obviously a very helpful passage of Scripture to us because we realize that it is not God's will that someone would be among his disciples and persist in unrepentant sin. God is concerned for holiness. And it is his will, if we read through 15 through 20, that believers lovingly, patiently, and persistently call brothers and sisters or his little ones to repentance. 
And it is his will that those who persist in sin recognize that their claim to Christ is inconsistent with their claim. If they persist in sin, but they claim to be a child of God, if they claim to be a little one, but they're not truly humble and trustful and obedient, they're living in a path of sin that God would not approve of. If someone lives in that path and persists in that path, their claim to know Christ could be false. Now, they could know Christ. But this process is for a church, the disciples of the Lord, to pursue so that that person knows that that claim and their actions are inconsistent. And as we go through this passage, I think you can see the purpose is restoration. The real desire that Paul speaks of in Galatians, and certainly our Lord intends here, is patient, persistent attempts to restore this person to a right fellowship with God and right fellowship with God's people. So you might again say, well, what sins? It says if your brother sins, is that every sin? Is that sins of the heart? Is it sins that no one else knows about? What is it? And you can certainly see in the context of the New Testament that there are times where God acts And as he acts, you see why he's acting and dealing with sin in the life of his people. Before there was any church discipline per se, God exercised discipline when Ananias and Sapphira were lying. In a very public way, lying about what they had given to the church. And God gave Peter supernatural insight. And the Lord practiced church discipline by literally taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. Talk about church discipline. In Corinthians, God, through observing the Lord's table, was dealing with the Corinthian congregation. And as they were living in disobedience, walking in paths of sin, paths of sin, and not repenting, it was their persisting in that, and they're also partaking of the Lord's table, that the Lord started to discipline them through sickness and weakness, and some even death. So this is a serious matter. One church in the 1880s, a gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching church, listed the following sins as sins that could be pursued for church discipline. And this is a list. I'm not saying this is Bible, but it certainly gives biblical concerns. The first one is any outward violations of the moral law. That would be, of course, the moral law that is expressed in the Ten Commandments. A second is pursuing any course which may, in the judgment of the church, be disreputable to it as a body. A third, for absenting themselves habitually without good reasons from the church at the season set apart for public worship. 
for holding and advocating doctrines opposed to those set forth in their statement of faith, for neglecting or refusing to contribute toward defraying the expenses of the church according to their several abilities, for treating the acts and doings of the church contemptuously or pursuing such a course as is calculated to produce discord, for divulging to persons not interested what is done in the meetings of the church, And then the last one is kind of an all-encompassing one for pursuing any course of conduct unbecoming good citizens and professing Christians. Church discipline is a difficult thing, at least as it progresses, because you can tell based on the passage, it eventually becomes public. And anytime something becomes public, it's difficult. But it doesn't have to become public. If there is repentance, according to Jesus' teaching, it's public enough for two people to know. But if there's a repentant heart, I'm not saying this is the case in every single case, but based upon what Jesus is teaching here, when someone sins and then is confronted by a brother and there's genuine repentance, it never has to go beyond that. And within the life of a church, this actually should be happening all of the time, where believers in their relationship with one another are speaking to one another and reconciling with one another. It's happening, and it just goes on like that. But if someone persists in a course of action that is sinful, then according to the teaching of Jesus, there needs to be a progression of activity around that person who is persisting of sin so that they will know the concern of God, the love of his people, so that they will turn from their wicked way. And so this first step is this individual confrontation, personal and private reproof. Look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So it's a personal, private reproof. The word that's used for reproof here is elenko, which means to expose or convict. It means to bring something to light. It's to point out the sin in light of God's word, to draw attention to the sin so that they can see it. And there are sometimes we get so self-deceived that when we are sinning, we don't always see what we're doing. We don't always see the effect that we have on others. Maybe we do. Sometimes we don't even see it. Maybe we see it, but we're not willing to deal with it, or we have not dealt with it. And God brings someone else around who is able to see and able to come with godly concern to speak to that believer. And they give reproof. They show that fault or that sin again in private. I have been reading. In this last year, a book called Unpacking Forgiveness by an author named Chris Bronze, and he gives some very helpful guidance. I'm just going to read his headings, and I think just his headings will be helpful, and I'll have some other thoughts too. But how do you give someone reproof? And I think you have to take special care if they have sinned against you, 
because if they've sinned directly against you, there would be a potential that your emotions or your own sin would influence that person, or you could actually sin against them as you go to them. So you have to be careful. But he gives this guidance as, as to how you should give reproof. Keep the circle small when you're reproving someone. According to this passage, it's really just you and that other person. Be gracious. No revenge. And then he says, not even a little. Listen first and be prepared to ask for forgiveness. In other words, it's possible you could go to someone and the very going to them to talk to them about something they did, they could bring up something that you need to repent of. Take the other person at his or her word. Choose the place and the time carefully. Choose your words carefully. And the last point was be patient and have modest expectations. I think it's wise, and this is also counsel that's given for those who might privately confront a brother or sister in Christ. I think it's wise to follow the teaching of Matthew chapter 7 and judge yourself first before you judge someone else. I think we alluded to that yesterday in our men's Bible study. That as you judge others, it's difficult and it's, of course, wise to look at yourself and what's in your own eye before you start to talk about what's in someone else's. If you need to seek counsel, and sometimes we do if we speak to a brother or sister in Christ about something that's going on in their life, maybe some conflict between You may need to seek counsel, but be careful not to disclose information unnecessarily or gossip. What is gossip? It's talking about other people's business or their behavior that's either inappropriate or embarrassing. So if you seek counsel, just be careful as you do that you don't disclose more than you need to. And I think sometimes counsel is, it is wise to obtain it before you speak to someone. So if you've judged yourself, you've sought counsel if necessary, then speak to your brother. Jesus doesn't go through those points here, but he has taught Matthew chapter 7 that we are to judge ourselves before we judge our brother. I think that's appropriate to include here as a part of the basis going to someone else. And then certainly, as Braun said, be gracious, or you could say it this way, follow the principles of biblical communication. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The wounds of a friend don't have to be wounding because they're sinful. That could be just a friend telling us what we have done. and tell them the truth about their actions or behavior, lovingly, graciously, kindly. Don't embellish. Don't exaggerate. Don't minimize or cover over. Don't assume motives. Certainly, as Braun said, don't seek revenge. 
Sometimes that's the reason people go to someone else is they actually want revenge for what the person has done to them. And you might be surprised if you were to take this course of action with someone who has sinned, you might be surprised and find out they really didn't know that they had sinned against you. Now they might. And if they do, and they're entrenched in their path of sin, they might not receive what you say. I think assumed in this passage is the possibility that someone would reject, even repeatedly. They would not listen to you. And I would also say, if you're ever on the other side of that, where you're the one who has sinned and someone comes to you, please realize that is a very difficult thing to do. It is not an easy thing to go and speak to a brother or sister about sin in their life. And sometimes people just don't do it. They lack the courage. It may be that they lack the love. It could be that they're afraid of the response of the person. That probably governs a good bit sometimes when someone is in a path of sin. They're just not sure, based on the person's behavior, what they will do. And for that reason, I think as Jesus gives instruction here, if there is a fear there and there's also a history there, then it may need to be beyond the scope of this passage. And what I'm saying is that in certain situations, Jesus is giving this instruction for his people but if there's a situation in which there's already a evidence that it could be a dangerous thing to talk to this person because of things that have happened in the past, that would be one where you need some counsel and maybe even need some help. And again, what's the concern? The concern is that person's life, that soul. Now, what if what, if what happens in verse 15 happens? What if that person listens? What if he or she repents? Guess what? Jesus says, you have won your brother. You have gained something. That restoration brings that person back into fellowship with you. And so it's a wonderful thing when someone responding to a concerned brother or sister, talk to them, they say, you know, you're right. I have sinned against you, or I have been walking in a path of sin, and you're right, I need to repent. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for caring enough to tell me. And you can tell that in the course of their response, maybe not immediately, but as they respond to you initially, and then eventually you can see that God, through your speaking to them, has humbled them. They have come to a point of shame. Maybe they hang their head. There is sorrow for what they have done. There's sorrow for the hurt that they have caused. But beyond any of those things, there's also this perspective that's not just relational towards man, but also towards God. They realize that in offending a brother or sister, they've also offended God. Like David in Psalm 51, when he says, my sin is ever before you, against you, you only I have sinned. Well, David hadn't sinned merely against 
God, he'd sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Bathsheba's family, his own family. He'd sinned against the nation of Israel. There were all kinds of people he had sinned against in doing what he did, but he began to see the enormity of his sin in terms of his relationship with God. And this is our desire, right? It's not merely to bring that person back into a relationship with me and other believers, but ultimately God. And if a person does recognize what they've done and they have a distaste now for sin because of what harm it has caused and because of what it is itself, but then they also are able to trust in the pardon of God and recognize that God has forgiven them. It is a wonderful thing to see when someone knows that they've been forgiven, the joy that wells up in their heart and can't but come out of their mouth and in their eyes as they light up and the smile on their face and sometimes the tears that they shed. The psalmist in 130 said, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word, do I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then he says, for with the Lord, there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And we see that every time we come back to the Lord and we find forgiveness, abundant redemption. There is forgiveness with the Lord. His mercy is higher than the heavens. He forgives and forgives and forgives. And he does so because of the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. And it's a wonderful thing to experience that for yourself or for someone else as you speak to them to come to the place where they get right with God. What else does that do? as you win a brother. James 5 says, my brethren, if any man strays, any among you rather strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You're coming as you speak to a brother or sister, you're coming in a certain sense in between them and destruction. And in some cases, it may actually be eternal destruction because they may claim to be a brother. They may look like a fellow sheep. They may have claimed to be a little one, but they don't really know the Lord. And the confrontation of them in their sin may help them to realize they're not even born again in the first place. So I just asked this question before we move on to the next verse. Where does church discipline begin? It doesn't begin with the pastor. Now, it could if the pastor happens to be the person who observes and confronts. No, church discipline begins with believers who love each other enough to confront one another about their sin. It begins when someone is concerned in love for a brother or sister in Christ who is in a way that's going to bring them harm and shame to the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to the person and they don't listen, they don't receive the reproof, they don't have any of those signs of repentance, then Jesus says, Don't give up. Go ahead and take 
Notice what he says, verse 16, one or two more with you. One or two more. This is the second step. The first attempt has been refused. It doesn't say yet why it's been refused. It just says, if he does not listen to you. Why might someone not listen to you if you go and speak to them? Well, again, it's possible that there's more sin going on and you need to deal with some things too. And that could get complicated. It could be that the person you're speaking to is an unbeliever. They have slipped through. If there's a Bible-believing church and they want their membership to be born again and they receive a testimony of faith from every person who would join the church. But it's possible that some could have slipped through, become a member of a church without being born again. Maybe they presented a false front. And if they are an unbeliever, this very process could be that which helps them to see that they're not a believer. The failure to repent when called upon by another Christian does not mean that a person is an unbeliever, but it is a mark of the the unregenerate. In other words, it's, it's possible that a believer could persist in sin. That's why I think we have even this process here described and outlined. Jesus knows the power of sin. He is our Savior, and praise the Lord, he breaks that power. But when a person becomes entrenched and engulfed and entangled in sin, it can be hard to get out of it. Spurgeon said in his commentary on Matthew, if the brother has trespassed very badly, he will probably be sullen or impertinent, and he will not hear you. And then he says, do not therefore give him up. Persevere in seeking peace. And praise the Lord that the Lord didn't say right away, if he doesn't hear you, that's it. No, we have a patient and merciful God. Someone who pursues sinners. Look at the life of Peter. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. He knew Peter was going to deny him three times. And he said, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you're recovered, go strengthen your brothers. Praise the Lord that he understands us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. So this first attempt is... Refuse. The second attempt is to be with a change of approach by the number of people who are participating in that reproof. Verse 16 says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So the circle of knowledge has not widened yet to the whole body of Christ. It's certainly, Jesus' instruction here would certainly prohibit gossip, but it would include making known the issue to to one or two others so that 
in another confrontation, these others can give their judgment about the person who is in sin. This increases accountability. It also establishes facts. This is not just a disagreement between two people. Now there are facts in play that have been established because there are witnesses to those facts. Jesus quotes from an Old Testament text in Deuteronomy that is in a legal context. Notice the end of the verse. It says, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That refers to the law of Israel in which one person could not be a witness against another person and their witness alone brought about penalty for the person they're testifying against. And obviously there are safeguards for that reason. Let's turn over there for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Look at verse 15. Moses says here, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. I'll just stop there for a moment and say, if if one person is witness against someone else, the second person could be the person themselves who says, yes, I did it. But if they refuse to, if they, if they don't admit to it, maybe they didn't do it in the first place, and there's no other witness, that case doesn't proceed until there's clear evidence or another witness that comes into play. Notice the next verse, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. In other words, it's possible that someone is just raising a false accusation. And Israel was to deal with facts, which were confirmed, not just by one person's word but by the mouth of two or three witnesses. If you go back to Matthew chapter 18, that's Jesus' concern. Again, there's an increase in accountability with one or two more. There also is that concern that as this moves forward, if the person still should not hear them, that when they go to the church, this is a factual matter. This is not something that somebody's saying. It's not a dispute between two people. Without evidence, there are actually others who are testifying, in this case, that the person is not repenting. Now, some might call what Jesus is describing here as an intervention. Have you ever heard of an intervention? People sort of surprise a person. This person has something about their life that's causing trouble to everybody else, and suddenly there's an intervention. These people gather together, and they meet together, and they confront the person, and it's, it's really not taking the first step of this process into account. And it's really, the, the goal is to have all of these people and the pressure 
that these multiple people asking them to change will, will bring. Well, sometimes that can actually bring an explosive reaction. Jesus is not directing merely an intervention. He is directing a small group. One of this group is the first person who confronted the person. And the others, three at the most, who participate in order to address this person about their sin. And obviously, verse 15, Jesus doesn't repeat, but there's also the possibility that just through obeying verse 16, that you could also win a brother or sister. That that increase in accountability the multiple voices speaking to this one who is persisting in a path of sin may help them. They may have something against the first person who confronted them, but maybe not the other two. And they're willing to listen. And God, of course, has to work in someone's heart to grant them repentance. Prayer certainly should bathe this whole circumstance because we're talking about an eternal soul. But what if there's a refusal? What if after first confrontation and second confrontation, there's persistence in sin? Well, then you go to the third step. Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, which is that broader group of God's people gathered together to worship Christ, serve Christ, do his will. If this person refuses to listen to one brother or sister or a few of them together, then it needs to become more of a public matter. Because what could be happening is this person could be exhibiting the signs that they, they don't really possess eternal life, that they don't know God. But, but they've come in to the the company of disciples, and they appear to be. They appear to be a child of God. They appear to be a little one. They appear to be a brother. They appear to be a sheep. The possibility is rising as that person refuses to repent that the reality is they're not a believer. And so then the church is told. But I want you to notice, even as the church is told, that's not for the purpose of excommunication. It's not for the purpose of suddenly cutting that person off. Someone said it this way, the church meets not to adjudicate a dispute, but for a pastoral appeal. And this is, that same person said, this is the ultimate level of persuasion where it's not just one or two or three, but a whole body of people who are believing in Jesus Christ who testify to that person that their behavior is inconsistent with the claim to Christ, to know Christ. And that should be in what I would call a members meeting only. This is for God's people. That meeting should dismiss people outside the church. It should only concern the church. There should not be gossip that goes out from that meeting, but instead the focus of that meeting would be to inform the congregation, not with every last detail of what's taken place, but with enough pertinent detail to help everyone understand that sin is being committed, 
It's not being repented of. And we want to call this person to turn back to the Lord. Because they have before claimed to know Jesus Christ. They have before claimed to have salvation. They claim to be brother or sister with us. And if that's the case, it's possible that believers get tripped up and fall into sin and even persist in sin. And it could be when it rises to this level and the church in its local expression, that body of believers starts to reach out in love to that person, that the multiplied expressions of care and calling to that person to repent will will melt by God's grace and his mercy, melt that heart so that they once again come back to the place where they realize, I need to get right with God. I need to get right with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if it happened that way? I read one story, I think it was in that book by Chris Bronze, that a person said that church discipline was the best thing that ever happened to her because it actually brought her into fellowship again with God. When it says, tell it to the church, the purpose of telling the church is so that the church will then speak corporately. It doesn't have to be necessarily through a letter. It could be through individuals. One person said it this way, by means of personal visitation, telephone conversations, the writing of letters, and whatever means appropriate. The entire congregation is enlisted to lovingly seek out this brother and persuade him of the despicability to the Lord of his sin. As members of the body of Christ, they are to lovingly call him to repentance. And in the context of what Jesus is saying here, notice it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church. That implies that the church has spoken. And it could come to a formal letter. And as a church, we have had in the past to write letters calling people to repentance. And as those letters have gone out and called for a meeting with that person and those letters were ignored or refused, then there comes a decisive point for the church. It's really a sad point. But it's a point of obedience because Jesus says here, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I think that needs a little bit of explanation because we're talking now about a severing of fellowship. It's not a severing of all contact, but it is a severing of Christian fellowship. It is no longer to recognize this person as a little one, no longer to recognize them as a brother or a sister, no longer to recognize them as a sheep. And instead, they are to be recognized insofar as the church is concerned as an outsider. An outsider. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean we don't care about them. 
but they have given through repeated calls to repentance their refusal to those calls, they have given evidence that they are not born again, that they are not children of God. And of course, we want them to be saved. We don't want them to go on in confusion, thinking that they are a part of the people of God when they're not a part of the people of God. And what church discipline does is it makes clear that this body of believers who are trying to follow God's word have basically said that I don't fit in the category of those who are followers of Christ. And that's a message. Sometimes people come to that recognition or that belief themselves without ever the church having to go through that kind of dis. They just realize, I, I'm not a believer. Sometimes they know it, and they just continue to deceive themselves. And they go on through life deceiving themselves, attempting to deceive others. And what I would say to that is what a poor and terrible life. Self-deception. As someone who follows Christ and to have spoken in their ears on the day of judgment, depart from me. I never knew you. And where does he say to depart? Into everlasting fire. We don't want someone to go into the everlasting fire. We want their salvation. We want them to come to Christ. So it would be better to have that relationship clarified for a person to realize their persisting in a path of sin is characteristic of an unbeliever. And if they get to this point and they're actually that, that relationship of the church is severed and they truly are a believer, maybe later on the Lord will work in their heart and they will come to a place of repentance. Seems for one of the Lord's own that he would either discipline them and discipline them and discipline them on earth or he would eventually take their life. so that they wouldn't grieve him and they wouldn't persist in that path and bring dishonor to his name any longer. This is sobering, isn't it? I, I hope that you can see, even in the context here, Jesus' own words, his call to his people to persist patiently, lovingly, but to persist and insist that this person turns from sin because God loves holiness and his people love holiness. But he is a loving and gracious Lord. And he does know that we are frail and weak and sinful. Briefly, what's the confidence of a church when following the commands of Christ? 
after that severing of Christian fellowship, letting that person be, be recognized as a Gentile that would be an outsider, a tax collector who is a pers- person in Israel, a Jew who has chosen that path and aligned with the Gentiles, and by their choice, they have become an outsider. Jesus says in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What is Jesus talking about here with binding and loosing? Someone has said these are rabbinical terms. They mean forbidding and permitting. This is the church as it acts. And as it acts, what Jesus is saying is that heaven is acting as well. Notice that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's something happening on earth. There's something uh, happening in heaven. What is happening on earth is Christ's people following his commands are obeying him. And when they come to this point where they sever fellowship based upon following his teaching and obedient to him, when they do what they do and exclude that person, that has been done in heaven. It's not earth forcing heaven. It's earth doing something and recognizing this is actually what God wants done. This is actually his direction. So when a church does it, they're actually following what heaven says to do. This is a picture of an obedient church acting according to God's word. God has already laid out the directions. They are following and applying those directions and conscientiously acting. And as they do, that's what heaven has done. And lest we be worried because I think it's possible even in matters of this kind of importance to get worried. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right course of action? Is this what we as a church ought to do? Well, look at verse 19. Who else is involved in this? I could say simply. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if any two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Jesus has been talking about a small group of two or three when he was talking about confronting this person the second time. So there's a link between these two verses and what has been said before. You cannot divorce those two verses from the context. If you do, you kind of have a promise that God's going to magically do whatever you want, just as long as there's two people agreeing to it. And God doesn't work that way. In fact, what is taking place here is the father who has a will is expressing his will through his son, who is saying the words that the father gave. And when the church obeys the words that the son gave, that the father gave initially, they're doing what the father has said, then the father is going to give them help. That actually comforted me as I was preparing to preach this message. That as, as serious as this is, there is a God in heaven who cares about his word being proclaimed and taught, and he will help. 
That's not to say that everything that comes out of my mouth shouldn't be tested by the word of God. It should. But I have the promise of a father in heaven who will help me here. And if I have to go through that process of church discipline, and I also have the promise, look at verse 20, of Christ who is present with me in that. Remember, Christ is giving the directions. This is his church. These are his people. That could be one of his sheep. And so as he gives these directions to his people and they act together, they gather together in his name and they seek to act according to his will, Jesus is right there with them, helping them, maintaining his honor, seeking his sheep because he loves them. He doesn't want to see one of those sheep go astray and get lost. And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't either. Now, as I said at the beginning, this verse 15 probably should be going on all the time in a church. When it rises to another level, it just means there's a persistence in sin that either it's an unbelieving heart or a believer who's gotten entangled and that needs attention too. Doesn't originate with the pastor, originates with God's people as they are concerned about what God is concerned about. Are you concerned about sin in your own life and the lives of others? Judge yourself, but let's help one another and let's follow Christ's direction. May the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, We do thank you that you've given us your word to guide us. We would be completely and utterly lost and foolish in our pursuits to try to deal with things like this. We just don't have understanding, but you've given us an understanding. And we pray that you'd help us to obey it. When we have concerns about a brother or sister in Christ, help us not to leave it to someone else. Help us not to leave it to the pastor, pastors. Help us to remember our relationship with that brother or sister in Christ. If we need counsel, help us to get it. And Lord, we pray that you would be honored in our church. Lord, that holiness and righteousness would be the pursuit of every one who names the name of Christ. And Lord, we we know that you can act apart from our acting. And we thank you that you do to protect your flock. But if it is that we need to speak to a brother or sister, or if we are in need of being spoken to. Lord, help us to be, to do right and to receive any rebuke that might come our way. If it's justified and we've not obeyed you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We ask our deacons to come.